If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 1, um, verses 1 to 17. I will attempt to get all the names right. (laughs) Okay, so starting with verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, which I can't say, um, and the same chap the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Aluid, Aluid the father of Eliza, Eliza the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and whom Jesus Christ was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, we don't usually have prize giving on Sunday morning, but if we did, (laughs) I think I should have brought myself a Mars bar in order to give James, but I haven't, so... I'm sorry about that. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we praise you very much that the birth of Jesus and his coming into the world was a real event. And we pray now that as we look at this opening of Matthew chapter 1, we pray that we would hear you speaking loud and clear as we see the significance of the birth of that baby 2,000 years ago, and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're starting a new sermon series today, looking at these first four chapters of Mark's Gospel over the next five weeks. The aim of the series is to take a fresh look at the events of that first Christmas story. I I guess all of us have sort of favourite parts of the Christmas story, but it's easy in that to miss the the big picture of what is going on at Christmas. 
And that is our aim over these next five weeks as we look at Matthew chapters 1 to 4. Because I guess it's true to say, isn't it, that a single event rarely tells us the whole story of what is going on. Take the arrest of Harry Redknapp, the manager of Portsmouth Football Club, on Wednesday morning. Now, people are arrested all the time. So uh, simply by the one event, you wouldn't know, would you, of the tale of corruption and intrigue that the police have been investigating. Or take the fact that the previous week the government revealed that it had lost a couple of digital computer disks. Not particularly noteworthy in itself, you may think. Until, that is, the government also admitted that on the disk were the names and bank account details and national insurance details of 7 million families, many of us included, I guess. Because one event rarely tells the whole story. Which is exactly why Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' family tree, or genealogy, as he calls it. Because, of course, if he simply started with the birth of Jesus in a stable, it would just be one event. So instead, he wants us to grasp the significance of that one event, to see the coming of Jesus in the context of the whole of human history. Now, notice that Matthew has arranged Jesus' genealogy in three sections, each one with 14 generations. Have a look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And notice that each of those three sections ends with a person, with an individual, Abraham, David, and the Christ. And notice too that it's those three individuals with whom Matthew kicks off in verse 1. He mentions them right at the beginning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because those three names, as far as Matthew is concerned, hold the key to understanding precisely who Jesus is and to seeing his significance as he comes into the world. Now, you'll see there's an outline on the back of today's service sheet. You might like to turn to it. Uh, Do take notes. Many people find that helpful so they can look at it again later on. First of all, we see that Jesus is the son of Abraham who will bless the nations. Now, many of us saw back in our study groups back in September that Abraham was the nomadic Arab whom God singled out 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. He had nothing to commend us before God, just like the rest of us, but was spoken to by God and was given a wonderful promise that I've put there on the outline. Let's just look at it together. This is the promise God gave him. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you, I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, you may remember that up to that point in the Bible, things in human history had gone from bad to worse. 
the beautiful world that God had created and made had been turned sour by human rebellion. Mankind had attempted to dethrone God and to put himself where God alone should be. And the result was disaster, as Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden under the judgments of God. And after that, the downward cycle of rebellion only got worse. And we found ourselves asking the question, how on earth is God going to restore this world in rebellion to himself? How can the nations receive the blessing of living in relationship with God again, rather than under his judgment? Well, the answer through this promise, all covenant to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And notice that point is reinforced in the way in which Matthew arranges the genealogy. Notice that verse 2 establishes the pattern. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. But then notice how in verse 3 the pattern is broken, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Now, in the first century, any self-respecting Jew would have choked on their conflicts at that point because Tamar is not the kind of person you'd expect to find in the family tree of Jesus. You can read all about her in Genesis chapter 38 later on. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah. She was abused terribly. On one occasion, he mistook her for a prostitute, and by her he fathered the twin boys, Zerah and Perez mentioned in verse 3. Well, in verse 4, the pattern is resumed again, but is interrupted in verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab? Why, she wasn't a Jew at all. She was a Canaanite, and she was a prostitute. We read about her, some of us, in Joshua chapter 2 last year. She was the lowest of the low as far as any self-respecting Jew was concerned. And then there's verse 5, there's also Ruth. She wasn't a Jew either. She was from Moab. And yet she became the great-grandmother of King David. Well, I wonder if you can begin to see what Matthew was getting at. The promise was that through Abraham... Blessing would come to all the nations, to people like Rahab, to people like Ruth, that God's blessing would come to anyone, yes, even the despised like Rahab, or the despised like Tamar. It's why in Matthew chapter 2, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time, Matthew records the baby Jesus being visited by magi, by wise men who themselves weren't Jews, they were from the nations. It's why in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew records Jesus commending a non-Jewish Roman centurion for his faith. Jesus says to him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such such faith. It's why at the end of his gospel, Matthew records the great commission of Jesus I put it there on the outline. As the risen Jesus says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples 
of all nations. The despised, like Tamar. The godless, like Rahab. The foreigner, like Ruth. Jesus is the son of Abraham, who will bless the nations. Now, over the last couple of weeks, I've come across a number of people uh, wondering who it is they should be inviting along to carol services. As we heard earlier, we've got one next week, another one uh, the week after, and I'm glad that some more invitations have arrived. But I think it's fairly clear, isn't it? Anyone. God's blessing is for anyone. The nations. Let's not write off someone just because, like Ruth, they are brought up in a different culture. Let's not write off someone just because, like Rahab, their life looks as if they're a million miles away from ever being interested in Jesus. And of course it means that Jesus has come for us too. Whoever we are, whatever our background, if you're not a Christian here today, we're delighted you're here. And I hope we can see that this promise means that there is nothing in your past or your present that means that Jesus is not interested in you. No matter how much you've messed up your life, Jesus has come for you too. Which, of course, is why Christians have so much to celebrate at Christmas. So then, first of all, Jesus is the son of Abraham, who will bless the nations. Secondly, Jesus is the son of David, who will rule forever. Because as we read on in the Old Testament, we also discover that God's plan to bless the nations involves a king, a king who will rule his people forever. As with Abraham, God chooses, it seems, the most unlikely candidate. He chooses a shepherd boy, David. And God makes a promise or a covenant with him as well. I put it there on the outline, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Let's just have a look at it together. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here you see is the promise that the descendants of David will rule forever. And therefore, at one level, this next paragraph in the genealogy, verses 6 to 11, is a search for that one descendant. But actually, we search in vain. And again, it's the way in which the pattern is broken that gets us thinking. So have a look at verse 6, beginning of the paragraph. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, more choking on cornflakes at this point, Uriah with whose wife Bathsheba, King David, fell in love. Uriah, whom David had killed, so that he could take Bathsheba to be his wife. In Uriah, we see King David, the adulterer, the murderer, and the deceiver, which really sets the tone for the rest of the paragraph, because as we look on at that list of kings in verses 7 to 11 why they look increasingly less likely, less like the promised king who will rule forever. So if you just uh, skim down, there's Solomon, who presided over Israel at the height of of its power as a nation. He himself was fabulously wealthy, 
wise, yet hopelessly weak with divided loyalties, marrying unbelieving women. And as for the other kings there, they go from bad to worse. Yes, there were some better kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, but on their death, the sort of downward spiral each time simply continued. Manasseh, mentioned there in verse 10, would have made a Saddam Hussein look the model of tolerance and moderation. I rather like the story of the American family that I came across recently who were keen to trace their family tree. So they hired a genealogist to do some research for them who unfortunately discovered the truth about great-uncle Zach. Great-uncle Zach had been a convicted murderer, held on death row, and electrocuted in the electric chair. Well, it was a fairly respectable family, so they asked the genealogist if he could simply kind of airbrush out that particular detail in the family history when he wrote up his report. Well, this is what he wrote on the paragraph on great-uncle Zach. Uncle Zach worked for the Department of Justice for a number of years, after which he was given a chair in applied electronics at a well-known government institution. He became quite attached to it, (laughs) held there by very strong ties until eventually he died. His death came as quite a shock. Well, there is no attempt, is there, in Matthew chapter 1 to conceal the more unsavory characters in the family tree of Jesus. These kings go from bad to worse as God's people end up in exile, verse 11, deported, kicked out of the land of Israel that God had taken them to. And so we're bound to ask the question, where is this son of David who will rule forever? And Matthew wants us to know that in Jesus, this king has arrived. Jesus is the Christ, literally the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. A king descended from David who will rule forever, who will rule rightly, who will rule justly. So unlike most of those kings in verses 7 to 11. And again, we see that very clearly at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, once again, I put it there on the outline, as Jesus says, having risen from the dead, as he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Now, it seems to me that's a very challenging thing, isn't it? Because it's so easy to slip, I think, into a sort of form of Christianity, which is really all about me which thinks of Jesus as my saviour, my friend, there to sort out my problems, as if what matters in this world is my agenda and what I happen to want to do with my life. But of course, that is not genuine Christianity at all. Jesus didn't come to sort out our problems and to fulfil our own agendas as we happen to see them. I think it was President Kennedy, wasn't it, who woke up a whole generation of Americans in the 1960s, with the soundbite, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I guess as we approach a new year in a few weeks' time, many of us will have our own agendas, 
our own ambitions, our own plans. But of course the challenge is, are we pursuing our own agenda in life, or are we pursuing Jesus' agenda? Are we expecting him to kind of fit in with what we want to do, or are we seeking to serve him? Are we seeking to, uh, are we expecting him to mould what he is doing around our lives, when of course we should be moulding what we want to do around him? Yes, if Jesus is the son of David who rules forever, then what matters is his agenda in life and lining up our own lives with what he is doing. So Jesus is the son of Abraham who will bless the nations. Jesus is the son of David who will rule forever. Thirdly, Jesus is the Christ who will rescue from judgment. Now, the exile or deportation, as Matthew calls it in verse 12, came at the lowest point in Old Testament history as God's people were expelled from the land of promise that he had taken them to. By the year 586 BC, they had been invaded by the Babylonian Empire. Most of the royalty had been put to death. The majority of the population had been taken off to Babylon. The city of Jerusalem and its temple destroyed flattened. I guess the nearest we could have ever come to it would have been if the invasion plans of Nazi Germany had succeeded in the spring of 1940. If Churchill and the royal family and the senior politicians and senior civil servants had all been executed, Parliament destroyed, Buckingham Palace destroyed, and all the youth and the most promising people in the country had been deported to concentration camps in mainland Europe. Well, in the same way, the exile appeared to be the end of the world as far as God's people were concerned. No king, no temple, no homelands. And yes, it's true that 70 years later, a remnant did return, a small number returned, under Zerubbabel, who is mentioned there in verses 12 and 13. Yes, under him, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, Under him, the temple was rebuilt. But it was pathetic, feeble, compared with what the city of Jerusalem had been and compared with the temple under King Solomon. Indeed, those who attended the opening ceremony of that second temple were told they wept when they compared it with the previous temple because it looked so pathetic. Now, things didn't get any better. In fact, that uh, list of descendants there in verses 13 to 15, after Zerubbabel, Abiud, Eliakim, and so on, none of them get a single mention in the Old Testament. Zerubbabel is the last one to be named. Which I take it is precisely the point. Because they were nobodies. Not even worthy of a footnote in Old Testament history. And therefore, you see, whereas, and therefore, the Old Testament ends with God's people, yes, they are back in the land, they're no longer in physical exile, so to speak, but they are still in spiritual exile. They are still under God's judgment. The prophet Isaiah had promised that one day God would come and rescue his people, that one day he would come and establish his kingdom. 
that God would deal with the problem of his people's sin and rebellion and rescue them from judgments. But as we get to the end of the Old Testament, they are still waiting for that day to come. And so once again in this third section, the turning point, if you like, comes where the pattern is broken. Have a look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the father... But no, it doesn't go like that, doesn't it? does it? It's Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Here is a hint of an unnatural birth of the Christ. Here at last is the one who will rescue from sin and judgment. As the angel says to Joseph in Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the king who will rule forever, who will rescue from sin, who will rescue from judgment, who will bring blessing to the nations. Now, over the next few weeks, as we look at uh, the rest of Matthew chapters 1 to 4, we're going to see uh, what that involves and what that looks like. But I want to finish, if I may, just with two final applications for us this morning. First of all, it's fairly clear, isn't it, that we need to understand the Old Testament if we are to grasp the, the real significance of Jesus Christ. The Christmas story doesn't start with the birth of one little baby in a stable 2,000 years ago. It starts with the promise to Abraham 2,000 years earlier, 4,000 years ago for us. Because, of course, without the Old Testament, we can't really understand the world we live in. A beautiful world where everything was good, but is now a fallen, distorted world, where even in Dulwich, yes, there there is purpose and joy, but also there is pain and meaninglessness. Without the Old Testament, we can't understand the significance of the blessing that Jesus brings. Because as we look through this list of kings, we can only despair, can't we, as we find ourselves thinking, well, how on earth will this blessing that God has promised ever come? Until that is, we have the arrival of the king who will rule forever. Yes, we need to understand our Old Testaments if we are to grasp the significance of of Jesus. I hope that's an encouragement uh, to the many of us who are in study groups at the moment, uh, studying a a Bible overview over the course of the year this year, to persevere in that, uh, just as as we see how significant Jesus is, as we'll see gradually how he fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament. But then the second final application, that God keeps his promises It is extraordinary here, isn't it, where we see it was 2,000 years between the promise to Abraham and the coming of Jesus. It was 1,000 years between the promise to David and the coming of Jesus. It was 600 years between the exile and the coming of Jesus. But now in the birth of Jesus, God is about to fulfill all those promises. Now, of course, uh, part of the privilege we have of being Christians in the 21st century is that we live after the birth 
of Jesus. We can look back, can't we, on those 4,000 years and see how God has kept all those promises. But of course, we can still find ourselves asking the questions. We look ahead. Well, yes, there are still promises to be fulfilled. Will Jesus really come? As, as we look at our world, it looks so permanent, doesn't it? As one year follows on from another, as we celebrate Christmas yet again, as uh, we go through the same routines in life, day after day, month after month, year after year. Will Jesus really come? Today is Advent Sunday, when traditionally the church looks ahead to the return of Jesus. But will there really be a new heavens and a new earth, as God has promised? Will there really be a day when one day every knee will bow before Jesus as Lord, when one day day, every tongue will confess that he is Lord? Why, yes, because God keeps his promises. Let's pray together. And just a few moments for quiet reflection before we pray. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Heavenly Father, we praise you very much for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for showing us this morning the significance of his coming into the world to bring blessing to the nations, the king who will rule forever to rescue from sin and judgment. Heavenly Father, we're sorry when we live our lives as if our own agendas are what really matter. And we pray that uh, as we plan ahead, as we think about our own ambitions, our own priorities, that they would be those of the one who is king forever. And we ask it for his name's sake. Amen.